Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hey y'all, I just put out a seven week free painting boot camp. Don't be intimidated. We're not doing any kinds of burpees or running. This boot camp is all for your painting muscles. So in this boot camp, it's seven days of quick bite-sized lessons between 20 and 30 minutes with assignments for each days. And don't be intimidated by the assignments. They have all different levels. Whenever I explain this, I always try to get people to picture those 80s workout videos where they have the person in the middle doing the main exercise a beginner level and an expert level that's kind of how we set up the program so it'll meet you wherever you're at i'm really proud of this course so far people are absolutely loving it again it's free if you're interested please check out the show notes under free seven day painting boot camp in this boot camp we're learning the fundamentals of painting representationally Things like composition, drawing, value, color, light, and style. So if that sounds interesting to you, please check out the boot camp. Like I said, it's free. Tell me if you enjoy it. Let me know. I always appreciate all this feedback. And as always, happy painting. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari, thanks for being here. And today is the second installation of the Summer Book Club series where me and my co-collaborator, the amazing Megan E. Collins, you may know her as Virgo, like Beyonce over on TikTok and at the manicured shelf over on Instagram. She is a generational researcher and a trend analyst who does this professionally for a living so I'm always like so beyond flattered that she (laughs) would sit down with me for a three-part series as always I appreciated her insight as we went over the book Chromophobia by David Batchelor full disclosure I am very familiar with this book I read it initially in college kind of as just like required reading by my painting professor and then I read it again a couple years ago when I started integrating concepts around class and color into my artwork and then I reread it because it's a short book recently and every time I gain something completely new from the book I will say that the book does have parts where if you aren't kind of in the weeds of like color theory specifically color mixing like as a painter it can get a little technical and hard to sift through but most of the chapters are kind of written more like little essays and they're pretty to the point definitely recommend reading it you certainly don't have to have read it to enjoy or get something out of this podcast but if you ever get like a vacation where you can go read at the beach and you have some extra time it's definitely worth flipping through. I hope you guys enjoy the episode and also a reminder that next month, our final month of the three-part Summer Book Club series, Megan and I will be reviewing the book Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon. This is a book about the right way to steal as an artist and I'm really excited to dive into that episode, especially with Megan as a generational researcher. I'm very excited to see what she has to say. So with that, here's the episode and I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome, Megan Collins, back to the podcast. You are a fan favorite. Megan Collins is a cultural anthropologist who also is a generational researcher, and I love your perspective. I follow you on TikTok. Everyone should follow you on TikTok, and I adore your podcast, and so I'm always so excited to have you on the podcast and chat with me, and today our book we're going over is Chromophobia. First, welcome. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this book and to be on your podcast again. I love these conversations. They're always so fun. So I'm glad other people are enjoying them too. 
Yay. Yeah. So it's a summer podcast series. We're doing three books, one for each month of summer. This is Chromophobia. This is a book that's pretty near and dear to my heart. I would say I was introduced to it back when I was, I think either a freshman or sophomore in college. And admittedly, like 95% of it went over my head, but I like to think maybe it's a, a little bit of hindsight 2020, but that this book may have largely planted the seeds for me that art and even just the formal aspects of art, color, line, things like that can be, and I'm just going to use like quotes here, that deep. It's like a phrase meaning like, you know, that there's more to it than just, it's just color. And so anyways, I, I want to jump in by like giving a little bit of a description of the book. If anyone hasn't read it, you don't have to have read it to enjoy this episode. But my take on it is it, it's it's written by an artist who's like a legit, you know, real artist, David Batchelor. And I watched an interview with him where he was saying that he one day realized that the choice to use color kind of felt like a strategic career move and not like an art practice move. And he was an artist who was sort of his time that he was emerging was the 1990s. It was very video focused, very like to kind of use his words, everything was really stark and white. And so he wrote this book and it feels like to me a bit of a... I wouldn't say it's defensive, but as an artist, I recognize what he's doing. He's like making a point. It's a pretty short book, but he's just showing you as many examples as possible, kind of concisely, which I will say I actually kind of enjoyed. He didn't try to be artistic with the book. He just sort of said, example, example, example. And for that reason, I really like it. I'm curious, Megan, what you thought about like the flow of the book and like how the reading of it was for you. Yeah. So I was introduced to this book by you actually on the art retreat. Um, I read your copy and a lot of it went over my head as well. But I would say that like one of my major takeaways, both from this book and the art retreat in general was like learning to speak the language of color. And so I think that that was my biggest takeaway. I didn't really like unpack a lot of the ideas. I feel like the first time I read it, um, but the way he talks about color and even the way you guys as artists talked about color, I feel like was really helpful in understanding it. And I almost think of it like, have you seen the movie Arrival with um, Amy Adams, I believe? Oh, is that the one with the aliens that came to earth and yes. communicating? Okay. I haven't seen it, yes. but I know of it. <laughs> okay. Can I spoil it for you? <laughs> oh, totally. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So one of the like things in the book is they come and they're trying to communicate with these aliens and she's a linguist. And so like they're going back and forth. It's her and another linguist trying to figure out how they're going to communicate with these aliens when they don't speak the same language as them. Mm -hmm. But long story short, once she learns to speak the language of this, these aliens, she can travel through time. And I feel like it was very similar in the way it was presented in the film of like, there was never a moment where she was like, I now understand this language and I can teach other people. But she had this like internal understanding of their language, like a fluency. And they talked about like the, you know, you're fluent in a language when you have dreams in that language. And she started having dreams where she was time traveling. So like the movie is like positing that she learned to speak the language of time. And that's how I felt reading this book. I don't, I could not tell anyone like exactly what he means, but I walked away from it feeling like I learned to speak the language of color a little bit. Ooh, I love that. I love that example because it reminds me of something he talks about in the book and actually something that was like, I, I wrote a course, a color theory course for not sorry, art school. And the thing I had trouble with was language. And there's this idea of linguistic relativism, which is the famous, I forget his name, but there's a famous linguist who said, 
don't think of language as a coat that you put on an idea and every culture has a different every language has a different coat, but think of it as actual ditches, roads, and trenches that creates the grooves of which our thoughts travel. And I love that. It's like changed how we think of everything. And I, again, I have no real conclusion other than just like, I now question everything, <laughs> which feels I, very, I had a this book. <laughs> similar, like basically as I was reading the notes that I took, because I was like, I don't truly understand what he wants me to think here, but I kind of think I do. So I have kind of like thoughts that it sparked in each section and one of them was that like language is very or not language that color is very relative and it's not something that exists in a vacuum and it communicates based on its relation to everything else and like obviously this is something you taught me with like color theory and like how you can change like what paint is doing and like how if you put color in a different context it looks different so it's like a very complicated language that transcends space and time is kind of like what I walked away feeling about color based on this. Yeah. I think that's a really good, I think that letting color take up as much space as a language feels like it's, yeah, it's, it's about as close as I can get to. Cause weirdly, the more you learn about it, actually on some level, the more elusive it comes, which is something I want to get to in a minute. But at first I want to like just establish with the listeners a little bit of, I love to talk to a skeptic. I tend somewhere in me is a bit of a skeptic. I I tend to get caught up in things, but I love speaking to skeptics. And so a lot of the book, I would say the takeaway, if I had to go against what we just said and try to squash it into something a little bit two-dimensional. The book is basically saying we currently in the West live in a culture that for various and numerous reasons, we value color less. We associate it more with the other, you know, and he even comes out and says it's racism, it's homophobia, it's sexism, it's ableism, it's classism, and calls all those things out with multiple examples. And I appreciate the book for that reason. But I always think of a skeptic saying, well, I don't know about that. Cause I've, I've tossed this idea to plenty of people who maybe aren't in the weeds of color and color theory. And they're like, I don't know about that. Isn't color a good thing? Don't we all like color? And the thing that I was thinking of is how we have so many turns of phrase in our, our language about things being sweet or rose color, colored glasses or showing true color. And on the surface level, it is sort of associated with a positive But as an artist who wheels and deals and has actually faced a lot of sort of, I think, unfounded pushback specifically with my colors, and I thought of a good analogy. And it's how like the idea of something sweet, in theory, it's like a positive thing, right? It's like, you know, there's lots of turns of phrase about things being sweet or you call someone sweet. It's a positive. However, we also know something about our culture is that it has this weird fascination and like a negative association with like food and enjoyment of food and the most extent of that being like gluttony and and certainly a vein in our culture of fat phobia. And so it's it's similar in that on the surface level, yes, it is a positive thing, but if you take it back a little bit and tap into our culture's roots of like puritanism and this like quest for purity and all those things, you do get to this like sort of dark underbelly, but it's like, it's hard to convince people who aren't in the weeds of color that that's a thing. And so I wanted to kind of start out by like laying that groundwork and saying like, no, color isn't as black and white, obviously as like good or bad, but there's layers to it. And if you dig a little deeper, it does allow us to really see kind of how western white culture works and i know if someone's listening they're like that sounds too deep i like i can't recommend the book enough i it says it better than i can but yeah i wanted to sort of lay that (laughs) groundwork out yeah i love that and i think 
One like nuance I would add to that because like as kind of like I guess more of a skeptic of that idea of like color is inherently seen as bad or like you know low class or tacky Mm -hmm. is Megan the Stallion has this line where it's like are they supporting you or really just attacking me and -hmm. it's like is it that they dislike color or is that they've put purity and whiteness and cleanliness on such a pedestal that they have a distaste for color and I think a lot of this book is in regards to like the high art world. And you've talked a lot about like the art world, just like having a distaste for like color in general. So while a lot of the criticism was coming, I think a lot of the criticism was happening in a very like 1% white space that ignores like the rest of it, but it's also reflective of broader culture because that's what we aspire to. Like Kim Kardashian's beige concrete house that she has and was like, in vogue. And so I think that it's not so much, I think that their deference to purity and whiteness is stronger even than their distaste for color. But I think that the way that we can fight that is through color and learning the language of color and expressing ourselves through color. And that's why we get so much pushback. And when I say we, I mean the non like 1%, the 99% of the rest of us. And I think also like you see as people like become themselves more like they embrace color like even me like I came to your art retreat last year on a journey of self-discovery with purple hair and now I like my nails are all eight of them all 10 of them are different colors you know what I mean so it's like people who are on a journey of self-discovery often play with color embrace color and so I think that that is not a coincidence that people who are like no everything's fine let's uphold the status quo really put whiteness and cleanliness and everything being minimal and the same on a pedestal. Yes. I am like nodding vigorously. Cause I think that is so <laughs> well put. Like if you are like starting, like you've summarized, I think the book beautifully just in that sentiment that, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, it's not as you. clear. Yeah, No, it's so good. It's like, it's not as clear as like, we don't like color. Cause admittedly that is a hard point to argue again, gestures at book. But say, but acknowledging that there's this holding up of, of, yeah, of purity. And in the first chapter, they even talk about sort of like the evasive nature of whiteness. Cause you know, white is at its core, uh, another color, but in the West, he sort of, again, through multiple sources talking, you know, throughout the chapter, he says, well, it's actually white, especially in like 17th, 18th and some of the 19th century morphed into the sort of absence of color. Like in a lot of ways, we probably could have picked any color, you know, not maybe not entirely, but, you know, shades of white versus white as a concept sort of split during this time period. And I think it it obviously makes sense that this was during a time period when hierarchies were being implemented. And one of those hierarchies being the most, one of the most insidious, which is racism. So it makes total sense that during this time, white goes from being uh, amongst the other colors to all of a sudden this this absence of color in the way that like black and gray and and all these other sort of less chromatic colors never seem to do and I think that that was a really interesting point that even in my first read through I was like oh yeah white does have this difference and you know one of the things he talks about is and I'm sure people maybe they know at this point because it's kind of I've seen it all over the internet but you know, during this time period, they were discovering these classical statues, you know, from from ancient Greece. And this is sort of the seed of like Western mythology and a lot of like why 
certain hierarchies exist is oftentimes held up by people at that point to this time period. And they found these white statues because the marble marble is the only thing that persisted. And they were they saw like I forget the name of the I'll put it in the show notes, but the specific archaeologist found little bits of paint on these statues. And instead of doing the honest thing and reporting that like there's probably there used to be paint on these, but we don't know what colors they are. He scratched it off and said they're white because the ancient Greeks were sophisticated. And again, all the words that we associate with that purity, that refinement, that sophistication that has turned into the hierarchy that we know now. And I thought that that was a really good kind of example of that because in reality, they were painted bright colors. (laughs) And I just think it's so interesting because again, if you think, well, you know, color's not that deep. I mean, why would somebody risk their career and certainly their their honesty for to uphold an, basically an aesthetic. That's so interesting about yeah, the line. I, <laughs> I mean, it's I, unfortunately the more you you learn about history, the more you learn. You know, it's it's almost a lot of especially like the larger mythos of, of our culture is just yeah watered down truths and half truths, and in this case, like a, a haul out lie. <laughs> Even to to what you said about watered down reminded me of like. One of the things that this book brought up for me is as a trend forecaster, I kind of see this is how it happens with trends is that like it starts in this really vibrant, maximalist, colorful way and then eventually gets like watered down. So like right now the color du jour is like this like cornflower blue, like an icy light blue, but we see like blueberry milk nails trending which I thought was interesting because it's like literally like take a drop of blue and put in a glass of milk and that's the level of color we're okay with on our nails I was just so telling of like this watering down of a trend for mass consumption yeah and speaking of that it reminds me of something I was lucky enough to get to interview sad beige do you know who she is on tiktok she does like the Werner Herzog yes and I listened to the episode and I I thought it was amazing. Um, and she said something about like children and parents feeling like they have to kind of like launch their ch- child like and set their child up for success and like optimize their child. And I thought about how like increasingly I am seeing parents mimic like the codes and cues of product launches when it comes to their children. Like I made a joke about Matthew McConaughey and Camilla Alves launching their collab of their son on Instagram but it kind of was what they were doing where they're like hey we have a kid and he's cool he's 15 now and like go follow him and even this idea of sad beige childhood after listening to that episode I think it comes from a good place of wanting to give your kid a blank slate to go like become something in a world that you don't know what it's going to look like and a world that like wants to sand people's edges down and isn't tolerate tolerable doesn't tolerate people who are different. And so like encouraging your child to like really towards like too much uniqueness or too much difference would actually not be setting them up for success in a world that wants you to be as palatable to as many people as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I, that's what I think I enjoyed about that episode is that we, you know, it isn't just saying like parents are following trends, aren't they dumb? And I think that that's something I enjoy about your perspective is that you always push past and try to find the humanity in most of these things, even if they are like maybe not good trends or like weird and (laughs) counterproductive in so many ways. But another thing that, you know, she mentioned is she said that one of her followers said that part of why people aren't wanting to add color to their home, because 
since this book, I think this book was published in the early 2000s, we've seen all over at least TikTok, these trends of like people using yes, less and less color in their car choices and their home home paint colors and certainly in home decor. And she mentioned that a lot of that has to do with sort of the showcaseification of their home that like on some ways we're kind of living on a QVC set because everything could be potential to sell, you know, an object. And it, obviously when you do, when you see, see was it QVC? Yeah. You have like a very blank generic looking home that looks, you know, nice middle-class. I always kind of joke, like growing up, I used to be so impressed with my friend's houses who everything had like 90 degree angles, like all my houses and my friends' houses that were on the same economic level as me, all the like walls and stuff were like wonky and bent it in. Anyways, but it's this nice, crisp, such new a looking a- sort of set. But yeah, the colors are shades of beige and grayish and white and black and like maybe a pop of like a natural wood finish in there. And that's as like spicy as it gets. But I think you're you're so right. I think a lot of this comes to like mass palatability and wanting to make sure that you aren't going to, I wouldn't say a but just like potentially turn anyone off. And I'm always so curious why that is. That's one of those like questions I sort of sit over my kitchen sink doing dishes and think about. But I will say like one other thought that comes in that I think the answer might lie in this direction is I've been reading books about the meritocracy. It's like my biggest kind of, I don't know, ax to grind right now. And there's this book called The Meritocracy Trap written by Daniel Markovitz, who's a Yale, I think, law professor. But he basically in this book writes how the meritocracy or the myth of meritocracy is actually harmful to the elites as well, because it puts so much pressure on their children because we live in a world where your outcome is largely dictated by the time you're 18 years old. So it's it's camp, it's le- you know tutors, it's private lessons. And yes, a lot of it is aesthetics too. And that's something I don't think we like to admit because we don't want to think that we live in a culture that's so vain. But I think that that's a silly thing to assume about a culture when one of our biggest marginalizations is something that's literally skin deep. So it's, a, it's just a contradiction that I thought the book kind of backed up in a really interesting way. I'm reading, um, I'm, I ordered paying for the party at your behest and yeah. I'm excited to read it as someone who like, I credit my success in life to the school I went to, like, and I'm very aware that it's like not even the education I received, like in the classroom, but just like the connections I made and the people I met and like all of the social conditioning I received, like that's what's made me successful in life, not the actual classes. Oh, that's so interesting to hear you you say that. And I, I know in a previous ep- a podcast episode that you recorded, you talked about that. And I think that's such a an interesting thing to dive into because we don't tell students that. We don't we really kind of continue the script where it's like work hard, learn a lot in classes. And I feel like as someone who, you know, I because of my upbringing, like I took that hook and sinker because I didn't know any better. My parents, neither one of my parents graduated high school. You know, I did not have, you know, nothing around me. I didn't have any connections at all. And so like my roadmap to life, life was largely the news and politicians campaign speeches. And I just heard over and over and over, like work hard, go to college, you'll get a good paying job. And obviously there's statistics that back that up, but it's not, it's not those things because of necessarily what you learn. It's those things because it makes you a more palatable person. And I think for me, that's always where I tiptoe into like true heartbreak territory because 
you know, it's just such a slap in the face to people's humanity. And I just think I wish at nothing else. I wish we were honest about when people are getting that leg up, like what are they actually getting? And I think, I think we live in a culture again, from this book that just tells me over and over that we don't want to contend with the fact that so much of people's outcomes are dictated by pure vanity, like superficial color, you know, the, the paint on top of the surface. And, and I think that that's where, yeah, that's where I, I'm most interested in as, as an artist and rereading this book. That was definitely my biggest takeaway. And so I wanted to also jump into the gender aspects of the book and talking about how color is often associated with femininity. And I was just curious, kind of like what your thoughts are on that. And if you like anything in trend forecasting, if you have seen that pan out and, you know, and I know last time we talked about how like so much of men's choices is an attempt to stay away from women, things that identify as female. And I'm wondering if you saw that sort of echoed in this book. Yeah. So one thing that in thinking about like color as a language, I also linguists talk about languages like being alive and it's something that's ever changing and, you know, ever evolving. And I think that I spent a lot of time thinking it's funny. Cause I was like, I'm only going to bring this up if she asked me, cause I feel like I'm always going on about men and how no, their like, worldview is crowded by it. So I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, but I think it's more about control and the desire to control and dominate. And I think that color is not very easily controlled. Um, I think that once it exists, it has a life of its own. And even to the point about the statues, like white or can like stand the test of time, like it'll just get whiter in the sun, whereas color betrays how old it is. It can tell you like this has been around a long time. And so I think because color has is alive and has a life of its own and ages and things changes, it is not as easy to control. And therefore men don't like things that aren't easy con to control like feelings or color. And so they avoid it. Um, but I think that we're giving men permission to play in more non-traditionally masculine spaces more. And I think that the best example of this is the Barbie movie. Um, yes. Have you seen it yet? <laughs> I haven't. We, my, my daughter's birthday is coming up and I think we're all going to go as a family like for her birthday. So I will. <laughs> I will say it's, she might get bored. It's like very cerebral, um, but it's very pretty to look at. So mm -hmm. she might just like enjoy all of the colors. But I think the, you, I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. We should do like a call, even if we don't record it, just to yes! talk about it. Cause there's I would love so to. much oh my God. <laughs> about aesthetics. But one of the things that I was very taken by in the movie is kind of this flip. Cause it's like wizard of Oz, you know, it's playing with all of that, but in those movies, like, and they talk about Wizard of Oz in this book and Pleasantville, they go from a dreary world of drabness to a world of color. And then it's like they're awakening, their senses are alive, and they're kind of seeing the world in a way they never have before. Whereas in Barbie world, in the Barbie movie, they go from Oz to the quote unquote real world. And it's kind of like the opposite journey. Um, Enchanted was also a very similar movie where it's like this fairy princess landing going into the real world. And so I think that it's a very interesting reflection of how we view men and women and aesthetics and who has permission to live in the colorful fantasy world and who doesn't. Yes, I, I love that. And it was, I think, yes, I'm so excited. I love that this is coming out around the Barbie 
movie fanfare. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it'll like be very seamless with people's like vibes <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that you brought up the point of difficult to control because on this, what might be my third, maybe fourth read through of this book, the thing, one of the things that hit me that I had never thought of earnestly anyways before is and I think it's because I did a whole section on color theory. I spent like a year color theory when I was writing my section for it. I thought it would be quick. And I it was one of those, like, I couldn't find where to enter color because it was so hard to talk about and so evasive. And it really didn't pin itself down to science very well. And I wonder if that's why, at least in the West, there's this tradition of the form being masculine. And by the form, I mean like the sculpture without the paint on top or a drawing or architecture is often held up in regard as like the most highest masculine form of like art and design, at least in our our culture. And then color has always taken a secondary and at least a feminine associated sort of connotations. And in various points throughout history, you know, like to the point you made in the very beginning, which is so good, we, it's not that we don't like color. It's just it, how much we hold up the masculine, the pure, the white, as opposed to color sort of dictates how in play and how taboo certain aspects of color are. And I feel like that that's a really interesting point whenever you think about sort of the masculine versus the feminine. And I feel like it's kind of that trope about like cats and dogs. (laughs) So there's this idea where people who tend to like dogs, it might even be backed up by science. I'll do a Google, but I feel like the idea that dogs, people tend to like them, men tend to like them, they're associated with with masculinity to some degree because they are obedient and they come when they're called and they're simple. And then cats are, you, each one's kind of unique. They don't come when they're called. Uh, your affection has to be earned largely. And this is very two-dimensionalized, but I feel like color has sort of the same thing. Form has, you can remake something. You can sculpt something Color, if it doesn't have form, doesn't make sense. And yet color activates everything. And so it's this weird kind of conundrum where form is not nearly as complicated. Now, it's not to say that it's lesser at all, but it's just different in a way that I feel like best articulates that I've ever thought of masculine versus feminine. I also wonder if it's really that it's like, I just had this conversation yesterday too, where um with my friend Kaylee and she was like, men are just more simple. And I'm like, are they really simple or are they afforded the luxury of a simple existence? And it's like, is form less complicated or have we as humans spent more time contemplating it and therefore we have the language to talk about it more and talk about it amongst each other, but we don't have that with color. Like so much of this book was me like having thoughts. I'm a very visual thinker. That was very hard for me to articulate. And my whole job is like, articulating thoughts and I would like sit there for 10 minutes trying to like come to a conclusion of something that I was visualizing but could not articulate and but that's color and that's like what color does and so I I wonder if it's like is color more complicated or have we just spent less time with color as a humanity than we have with the rest and also I believe this is a fact but more men are colorblind than women mm-hmm. and this is also a thing where people will be like the men will be like those are the same color what are you talking about and it's like I'm I'm not one for biological difference and like feeding into that but this is something where I do see like women do seem to be more sensitive to color than mm-hmm. men are and therefore that might be something that we're just more able to talk about but since we're not taken seriously therefore 
we're the ones who could interpret the language of color, but they don't want to hear what we have to say. So then we haven't spent as much time contemplating or thinking about color as we should have. But I think we're doing it now. And I think the Barbie movie is just the beginning. Yes. Oh, so many thoughts in there. And you're, I think, so spot on. I love that you brought up. Is it that it's more complicated or that we haven't explored? That's such a good paradigm to keep in your pocket. And I would say that the science actually points to your instincts being totally right. So fact about the Y chromosome. So the gene for colorblindness is carried on the Y chromosome. And there's also some science that says that there's a not insignificant amount of women who can actually see a little bit into the ultraviolet range. I will say my theory on that is that the more you have to look at color, the better attuned you get to it. So it's like the linguistic relativism. I, I really truly think because I have been working this muscle earnestly for over a decade now, I see more colors, not, it's not a superpower. I think anyone can do it. It's like going to the gym, but for your eyes and your brain and your perception, I think women do a lot of aesthetic labor. I think a lot of just growing up as a girl, being a woman, being a teenager, you know, you're in charge of decorating the office party. You're in charge of picking out the paint colors. Like women, it's sort of another invisible labor. And I always feel bad because it's like kind of one of the more fun labors, but, (laughs) but it is a labor that women almost, almost entirely take on in this day-to-day way that really is kind of unseen. And also Mm -hmm. in this other book I was reading, it's called Full Spectrum. It's one of my favorite books on color. The end of the book, I never thought I would have cried at the end of a color book, but I totally like had to pull over and cry. Um, (laughs) But at the end of the book, they were talking about how like they were, he was talking to someone who was a neuroscientist who specifically studied color in the brain. And I will say, remember the whole dress fiasco a few years ago? That actually elicited a massive breakthrough in understanding scientifically how color is perceived. So if that gives you any insight to how recent a lot of the developments and scientific breakthroughs on color are, like that's a huge, again, to your point about do we not know because it's mysterious or do we not know because we don't care? And I totally Mm -hmm. think, again, that points to that. But at the end of the book, he was talking about the scientist, how when we do all these scans of the brain Form and color happen in the same spot in the brain and they light up the same emotions in the brain and they light up everything. And yet we also know that you don't need color to navigate the world. Most machine learning technologies that are visual don't actually even include color because you don't technically need it. And so the scientist was really kind of curious, well, why why have we developed so much in our genes and biology to need color? Why is it such a part of our life? And his statement, I'm going to like paraphrase it, but he was saying that form is how we understand and navigate the world and color is why we we give a shit. I think that was literally verbatim what he said. And so color is why it matters. And I know that that's a little like woo woo. And again, maybe it's because I'm a color nerd, but like it, it just kind of like, I don't know. It's like, I feel like it's the one thing I wish I could shout from like the rooftops is like, you know, whether or not our culture gets it right on color, if you're playing in color and it brings you joy and it brings you happiness, We are built with that joy and happiness in us. And it's as vital as just navigating the world on a very basic level. And so like that, I don't know, that's just so beautiful to me. (laughs) That is really beautiful. Um, One thing I was thinking about like the role of color based on something that he said was like that people were scared of it because like something to do with injuries or something like that. And that got me thinking about like, color is just a messenger of like whatever but if your goal is to control and to be in control of everything all the time it can feel like color is always just 
presenting challenges to you or like things that you don't want to have to grapple with or like pay attention to. And so it's kind of like a shoot the messenger situation, you know, where it's like, I don't like, I get hyperpigmentation for instance. And then it's like, I could get really annoyed about that, but it's like, you know, and I've come to see it as like proof of aging and time and you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like all about how you think about it, your relationship to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That it doesn't have, it's presence doesn't have to be sort of a nuisance or like, you know, by having to paint something like I remember as a kid thinking, like, why do we paint cars? Why don't we let them be like, I don't know, gray or brown. I know nothing about cars, but <laughs> whatever color mm-hmm. they would be without the paint. And, you know, to your point, something I like literally just thought of is I wonder if that's why there's this resentment towards I sense from men towards the aesthetic, like why decorate? It's so funny. Cause like right before we were, we started this podcast, I was listening to a video that Seema made. I love her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love her so much. It's amazing. <laughs> and she was talking to someone who the, it was a, a man and the comment, uh, she made a video about like makeup or like art, historical makeup or something. And he was like, it's just insecure women who have to put pigment on their face, you know, to something insecure. I don't know. And there's a lot to unpack there full stop. But as far as like color, like I almost feel like there's this resentment that like we have to do that. And instead of acknowledging sort of the deeper structures of why people might need to, to put on makeup or to make something ornate or like that, that's the nature of like humanity, or I don't know, all of those things. It's it, there's more of this like resentment that we have to do that. And I do feel like color amongst all, a lot of other things gets this sense. It's like both joy and resentment. And I think that that's, that can be really complicated. And again, part of why I think making a case for like, hey, color's really loaded is really challenging. Um, can you say more about men having resentment about color? I would, oh, like, yeah, from a personal I, I want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yes, yes, I can, I totally can. It's definitely clear in the art world that if you're gonna play with color, you have to have it offset. Like you have to earn color. And so, mm-hmm. you know, even David Batchelor, I did a deep dive on him kind of recently, you know, his art, trying to understand him and where he was right before he wrote this book, like mentally. And mm-hmm. he was doing a lot of black and white. And whenever he decided to do color, he hung them on these like panels and like door frames. And it was just color on one side. And it was really bright, full chroma, like a pink or a yellow or a teal. But it, everything around it was very like in line with sort of the the taste and the aesthetic at the time. And I'm not criticizing him at all, at all. But it, it felt like he had to support everything with like the academic and the masculine and refinement in order to earn the right to play with color. And I also sensed that, you know, he chose color and probably got a lot of pushback, thus the birth of this book. <laughs> you know, I think he probably mm. sensed it too and was like, I'm going to, you know, and then he, you know, it's hard to say out loud. It's like, people don't like color and, you know, people are going to be like, what do you mean? Like you're an artist, like you're, you're here because of color. But, you know, I think he sensed this sort of resentment and it's something that I feel, and I feel it specifically as a a woman. Well, color is very integral to my class and gender because both of those things, because they are, you know, marginalized are exist in the other. There's an argument in this book that almost all uh, marginalizations actually have an interplay in this color purity dynamic but I've yeah I've gotten a lot of people say like the color use is tacky and over the top like I went to a painting workshop about a year ago with this male painter who actually uses a lot of color which is interesting and I had a painting that the background was purple the skin tones I played them very yellow intentionally and he was like well that's a really predictable color palette because it's compliments like 
that's just not a very good use of color. And I don't know, right or wrong, who knows? I, I am critical about those color palettes now a little bit, but it also, I, I thought about it and, you know, I think that that's just like another like key example of that, that color can be charged. Another thing is I had a, a, I went to Dallas other art fair, Dallas. I didn't know when I signed up for it is like this big interior design hub. <laughs> and to the point we made at the very beginning, interior design is very like, it's not, it's not a big color place anyways, but my booth was huge and it was bright pink background. And it was these, you know, girlish, like Y2K kind of paintings to lifes. And I got a ton of like really out of pocket comments. And we know this about sexism that it, it can come from men, but a lot of times the people who are doing most of the labor of enforcement of boundaries is actually women. <laughs> and in this mm -hmm. case, it was older women. So I had this one woman walk into my booth and she had a pink purse and she looked around and kind of her eyes were wide. And so I like engaged with her. I was like, oh, thanks for coming out. Like the booth matches your purse. And she was like, well, this is for breast cancer awareness and kind of rolled her eyes and walked away. And so it's, it's just, and I have probably have like 10, 20 more of those pretty overt examples of this. So yeah, as an artist, I definitely sense that, that pushback and having to earn color. And if you like color and it seems earnest, that that's like wrong. <laughs> How much of that is like what I was saying about, do you think is, how much of that do you think is what I was saying about like power and control and kind of like who gave you the authority to harness something so powerful? And also because these people hold purity and whiteness up to such high standards, to your point, they haven't spent as much time contemplating color. And so they literally just like don't understand it. However, it probably still causes that emotional reaction you were talking about. So it's this thing where it's like, who do you think you are making me feel all of these things with your color without me giving you express permission to do so? I actually think that's probably a tremendous part of it. And I think it's, I think it's incredibly spot on because it is an earning thing. Because if you think about it, it's not that mm -hmm. there isn't color in the the art world. Damien Hurst has his like color spots. You know, his whole thing is just like bright colors. Kuntz has his like neon, uh, not neon, but like bright colored dogs, balloon dogs. And so we see this example of like men who are at the top of the career, who are the, the, the tastemakers yeah. and, you know, the pinnacle of success and all those things who are playing with color but they're allowed to do it because they have enough leverage in the other direction that it's offset. So the thing that I've always mm -hmm. been aware of is like, I part of why I make the art I make is because I felt pretty early on this pressure to like pick a lane, like either do class or do gender because the combination of the two is too much. You've given up enough of your authority by identifying with both so strongly that you no longer have something to offset it because, you know, the whiteness offsets mm -hmm. it. And I think if I had a couple in the, in the positive that it could, I could probably play with camp in one of those two directions and still get a bit of a critical nod. And I have, you know, I'm a working artist. I, I have a degree. I've done a lot of things and I really struggle the more academic and highfalutin, like the thing I apply for is the harder time I get. And I really, and I, you know, instead of changing what I do, I just like make podcasts about it. <laughs> And I think that's kind of the gatekeeping nature of all of it. It's like, it's not, it's, I think it's post hoc reasoning. They don't dislike the thing or the color or you. It's like, they don't like the lack of control, lack of control of the narrative of the mic, even like with this Barbie movie and how all of the men started calling Margot Robbie mid, where it's like, that was an attempt to put her back in her place or like make some post hoc judgment about her worth and beauty 
because they didn't like the message that she was delivering. Yep. And we can see it totally. And we see it with like, okay, well, what did they use to degrade her? I mean, in addition to, unfortunately, I think their brains being a little bit rotted and I'm only hyperbolizing a little bit. I think it's also (laughs) that, well, what are the tools that we can use against women? Ageism. And it's not even that she looks old. It's just that they're like, it's a tool that we have in our, in our toolbox that could make you, that has historically made women in their thirties go away and lose their power and their privilege not because they didn't earn it, not because of them as a person, but because of these tools that we have that are really not personalized. That's the whole point. They're generalized so that they can massively hurt people. But yeah, I absolutely think to your point, I think this book actually, I think you could actually say that a not insignificant theme in this book is control. And I don't even think he says control hardly at all. (laughs) He says pure and purity a lot, but no, not control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Purity. No, it's it's such it's such a good book. I I definitely, if anyone's listening to it, I still think even though you listen to this episode, you could get a lot out of the book. You know, with that, I think, you know, my takeaway for this, like who is this book for? Who would this help? I think if you're any kind of artist and you're, I mean, even if you don't do it with color, I think if you're an artist, this is one of those like just just sit down, read it. There's like three chapters, read them like articles. It's on its audiobook now, like as of like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> So you can listen to it on audiobook, but yeah, it's a good one. I recommend it. I think it's a must read this and like ways of seeing are like for sure must reads for, for artists and anyone who does, I think anything visually creative, I think it's just like a must read, but I'm curious what your like overall takeaway or recommendations for this book is. I am super interested in aesthetics right now. And aesthetics is kind of like aesthetics are the new trends. Like trends used to be kind of like one singular unit. And like, everybody wants that one thing, like silly bands. And now it's becoming more of like a universe, like Barbie core. So I thought that this was really illuminating in terms of like how art movements have happened in the past and like lots of anecdotes that just made it feel like related to today. So like I said, I wasn't always 100% catching his meaning, but I was having a lot of interesting thoughts about the ways that aesthetics are acting in our culture right now, which was really cool. So I think it's just very thought provoking, no matter if you're interested in art, aesthetics, color at all, you'll have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, I love that. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for for chatting with me. I always am a little remiss to cut it short because I think we could go through every single chapter and talk. And I just wanted to say, I, I, I always so appreciate your insight. I know at the beginning, I before we started filming, you chatted about like, well, I'm not an artist. And this book does get pretty into the weeds <laughs> of like painting and the technology behind it. But I wanted to say just like, thank you. I thought you had fantastic insights and I knew it was going to be a co- good conversation. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the next one. Yay. That was such a fun episode to record. I always enjoy sitting down and chatting with Megan and hearing her thoughts. Next month, of course, we are reviewing the book Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon. It'll be the final iteration of the three-month summer book club series. I'm sad that it's coming to an end, but let me just say as a Texan who's enduring wild heat, I, I'm i ready for fall. So thank you for everyone who took the time to listen. I always appreciate when you guys engage on social media. And as always, thank you to everyone who has left stars as reviews and also anyone who has taken the time to write a review. It is tremendously helpful. And more importantly, it gives me feedback into how the podcast is doing. So remember, if you write a review, I will read off your Instagram or social media handle on next week's episode 
With that, take care. Thank you again and happy creating.